0: Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to FraserForum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is Danielle at FraserForum.org. We'd love
1: to hear from you. You'll understand the economics when you understand that there is such a thing as not having enough pollution. It's possible to overshoot the optimum if you are incurring more costs to reduce pollution than the the benefits attached to those reductions.
0: I'm joined now by Professor of Economics at the University of Guelph. Professor Ross, McK- Ross McKittrick. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, Danielle. My pleasure.
0: You know, we haven't had a chance to talk in this long form before, but there's so much to mm. get. You've written so much on the topic of carbon taxes. I have to wonder, when you began your career in economics, no one was even talking about carbon pricing. So I'm really curious, mm-hmm. now that you've become such an expert on, on how to price, wh- when did this emerge as an issue in the economics field?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, so that takes us back to the early nineteen nineties when I first started my PhD research at the University of British Columbia, and I got into it a bit indirectly. I was actually interested in the um, the modeling side of it, called computable general equilibrium modeling, and I needed a topic to look at, and I was also interested in environmental policy generally which was emerging in economics as an important subject and um, so when I started looking at environmental policy topics there's a range of them there's lots of environmental issues but um, the uh, topic of putting a tax on carbon dioxide emissions uh, was attractive because it was actually an easier topic to look at if you're going to look at particulates or sulfur dioxide emissions, for instance, you need to have a model that has a lot of abatement technologies and the electricity sector in a lot of detail. If you're going to model carbon taxes, you really just need detail on the patterns of fuel consumption because with CO2 back then and pretty much still today, there's no abatement technology. If you burn the fuel, you release the CO2. So that made the modeling side a bit easier. and. When I started there had been a bit of work in Canada. There had been some work done at the Department of Finance and um, just a a few other people had written a bit on it, but it wasn't a well studied topic, that's for sure. So it, it was pretty new back then.
0: You know, I have to go going back to my own experience with the Fraser Institute. I got hired on as an intern back in the 90s. And my first project was environmental indicators for Canada and the United States. And we did look at traditional pollutants. So sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide. I believe the ozone was in there as well as volatile organic compounds, particulate matter, Mm -hmm. carbon monoxide. But the, the difference was it was difficult to figure out how to how to treat the goal on carbon dioxide, because with all those other emissions, you could measure the level in the air with air monitoring stations so that you could develop an ambient level that you wanted to stay below for the benefit of human health and the environment. And that's what makes carbon dioxide so so difficult is it's it's hard to determine what the goal is. What is the optimal amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? Do, do we have a target in economics?
1: Well, um, not really. Um, the The thing about CO2 is it mix, gl- mixes globally. So <laughs> uh, CO2 stays in the air for a long time and it travels throughout the whole circulation of the atmosphere. So what we experience is really an average of everybody's emissions around the world. Whereas sulfur dioxide or particulates, they're much more local. So here in mm-hmm. Southern Ontario, our levels are based on our own emissions, plus emissions from the U.S. Northeast. And if we all reduce emissions locally, the levels go down within a couple of days because um, it's not mixing globally. So it makes sense with sulfur and carbon monoxide and particulates and all the ones that you mentioned just to look at the local levels, um, which also affect um, your well-being directly. So um, we're concerned about particulates because there are health impacts if they get really high. Now with CO2, there's a couple of differences. One, as you mentioned, um, we inherit the level of CO2 in the air from global activity and from what's happened in the past, but we we don't have any real effect on it locally. Even if you take all the Canadian emissions put together, we're one and a half percent of global emissions. So we don't determine the global CO2 level and then CO2 was never regulated before because it's not an air contaminant in, in the sense that there's no hazard associated with inhaling CO2, even at much higher levels than than what we have now. We have uh, just over 400 parts per million in the air, but even if it was 1,000 or 2,000 parts per million, it wouldn't really have any health consequences. If you go past that, it can start to matter. Um, and so... Uh, For that reason, it's never been regulated as an air contaminant. Um, And now, with the connection to climate, uh, that's what people are concerned about. And then you raise the issue, well, what would be our target if we could control the CO2 level in the air? Um, If we look at the geological history of the planet, we have very low levels right now of CO2. So um, much of the plants and animals uh, around us evolved when CO2 levels were anywhere from five to 10 times higher Mm -hmm. than what they are now. And um, over the past 10,000 years, the CO2 level was pretty low. Um, It's estimated to have been under 200 parts per million until we started releasing a lot of CO2 through fossil fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. If we were to say, what's the optimum? the economic answer is you have to look at the costs and benefits along the way of where you're planning to go. So if we said, well, could we possibly get back to 200 parts per million? Um, first of all, would we actually want to cool the climate if, if that were going to be the consequence? But more than that, how much would it cost to eliminate all sorts of emissions and then extract CO2 out of the air, probably It's going to be prohibitively expensive. It's not a target we would aim for. It's more when we look forward and we say, okay, an awful lot of economic activity is tied to the release of CO2 into the air. And um, so we want to try to figure out what's going to happen over the next few hundred years if we don't do any emission controls on CO2. Um, If we don't like where that takes us, we can start aiming for lower cumulative emission targets. Ideally, we would only pursue those to the point where the benefits in terms of reduced climate change um, are large enough to offset what would be the costs of achieving those targets. And I don't know if there's a an agreed upon number there. I think um, A lot of the discussion instead gets put in terms of temperature so Mm. nowadays there's a lot of discussion about well we don't want to have more than one and a half degrees of warming compared to the late 1800s however that didn't come from economic analysis that was more just a number that was agreed upon at political meetings and um scientists and modelers like it for various reasons but it's easy to find economic models that have said Uh, No, if if these connections between CO2 and temperature hold up or follow certain assumptions, um, our optimal path would look more like three or three and a half degrees of warming. For instance, the Nordhaus model um, in various iterations has often said, um, okay, our our optimum would look more like three to three and a half degrees of warming compared to pre-industrial levels.
0: And so this is where, I guess politics enters into the picture, because I, I think that there is this notion that when you're talking about the health of the planet, and those on the extreme end of the environmental movement even talk about an existential crisis, then mm-hmm. d- does that throw the, the cost-benefit discussion out the window? Shouldn't we be trying to achieve net zero just because the stakes are so high? How do you bring economics into a discussion that has now become quite politicized?
1: Mm. Um well, I I guess I'd have to understand better what the basis is for saying it's an existential crisis. Yeah. Um, we've lived with climate change for 150 years, for instance. And and there have been, well, the data shows there's been warming, there've been changes, there's been um, uh, trends and different measures. But they've also been so small in the background compared to everything else that's affected human welfare mm-hmm. that... Um, we wouldn't have um at this point in time we wouldn't want to if we could go back in time and tell the world hey don't use fossil fuels um that would have made the 20th century much worse uh, Mm -hmm. for people and that's the kind of reasoning that we need to have looking in the future if if it's just a matter of warming and slow changes in the system then the calculation remains the same. And in fact, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when it's had teams of economists writing about um, the outlook for the future in the the fifth assessment report, one of the points they made was, yes, you'll you'll see climate changes, but those effects are actually going to be pretty small compared to all the other Mm -hmm. things that are going to change, technology and economics and population and everything else. Um, I think the... People who point to an existential threat are assuming that there's an inherent instability in the climate and there's a tipping point, there's going to be some disastrous effect and um, sort of day after tomorrow scenario where suddenly the whole thing goes haywire and we have widespread death and mayhem and destruction. And um, I think that's the sort of idea you should put on the table and then ask questions about it. Do we have evidence that the climate is actually like that and if it is that unstable then why is it that it looks so stable today in the sense that it's been buffeted by all kinds of changes throughout history um, including geological history and it just doesn't give off the the indication of being uh, prone to these tipping points and prone to massive instability that wipes out life on the planet as a result of small changes. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just a kind of superficial comment about the point, but I think it, it, it that's the kind of question that needs to be asked. Is the climate really so unstable that um, we should expect there to be catastrophic tipping points around every turn? And I don't think that's the case, and I don't think models or um, whatever they're worth one way or the other, they don't behave that way. And you can make them behave that way if you want, but you have to basically build in the instabilities by assumption, it's not not a property of of the the climate models that we have. Um, So unless you have some kind of, a, a large enough probability of catastrophic damage. Um, We don't see this as an existential threat, and it's just not going to be the case that the costs of climate change would say that we should be looking at completely eliminating fossil fuel use, given how essential fossil fuels have been and will continue to be for um, economic well-being in the world
0: you've explained a couple of things really well. I think you've explained why different nations take a different sense of urgency around this issue, because I think they're assessing it in different ways. That would be one. Number two, we're dealing with sort of a global market and a global, uh, all of the actions of every player, as you say, gets averaged out. And so how much impact can we uh, have alone in Canada? Um, And I guess the other part is we've got to figure out when we're dealing with our export markets, if we take more aggressive action, because we've come to a different conclusion about the level of urgency, what sort of economic impacts is that going to have? So I would Mm -hmm. say that um, in Canada, with the Supreme Court decision, with the um, liberals pricing CO2 in the future at $170 per ton, with the federal conservatives coming through with a carbon pricing plan, I would say that there is at least a political consensus that carbon needs to be priced in some way or another. And so maybe we can, we can talk about that because there really are, if you've made the d- political decision that you want to move on an issue, uh, mm-hmm. as, it, as we have, then there are a couple of different mechanisms that you can use to, to move in that direction. We've had whole reams of regulations at the federal level, at the provincial level, mm-hmm. even at the local level. But the um, emerging consensus seemed to be around carbon pricing. And I think that there is the idea that if you want to create the dynamic for free enterprise and 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 for entrepreneurs to solve this problem, then you should price it. And that carbon pricing is the optimal way of going about and getting the, the, the outcomes that you're looking for. Do you agree?
1: Yes, I do agree. Um, yeah. And there's a few points around carbon pricing that, that um, people should understand, Um one is that whatever you're going to accomplish as far as CO2 emission reductions, um, it's pretty well established in, in the economic analysis that the cheapest way to get there is going to be relying on carbon pricing. Uh, you build the price into fuels, people take it into account, they look for alternatives. Um, what you want is people in their own um, lives and their own businesses and their own households they're the ones that have all the information about how they can change their fuel consumption um, in the least disruptive way. And so that's the kind of information you need to get access to. And the way you do that is is through the price system. At the same time, um, there are uh, some points that I think people tend to miss. One is um, the reason, for instance, that gasoline taxes are high Is you can put a fairly steep tax on gasoline and people still buy gasoline. Governments like to put taxes on stuff where they're guaranteed to get the revenue. There's no point putting a high tax on something that you just wind up destroying the market and then you lose the economic activity and you don't gain any tax revenue either. Um, Price elasticities, as we call them, for fossil fuels tend to be pretty low. So that means. If you put a a price on CO2 emissions, you may not see much emission reductions. Mm -hmm. Um, People will perceive the higher price of of using gas and natural gas and coal, but they'll probably still keep using it um, with some modifications to their consumption patterns, with some reductions. At that point, if emissions don't go down a whole lot in response to a carbon tax, it's wrong to say, well, that just proves carbon taxes don't work. Um, What that tells you is the fuel consumption is extremely valuable for people, and it's going to be even more costly to try to get larger emission reductions with any other mechanism. So the advantage of of, uh, carbon taxes, if they're implemented um, with revenue neutrality, you can use that revenue to reduce the burden of the rest of the tax system. So your getting offsetting gains to the economy to, to offset the costs of, of the higher energy prices. And you're putting a price signal in that gets all that information onto the table, people figuring out the least cost way of reducing emissions. Um, so it's, that's better than regulation. But you may not get much emission mm-hmm. reductions, at least in the short run. It may be that over decades, people adjust to the higher energy prices with persistent reductions in in energy consumption. Um, but that is one of my concerns about the whole discussion around carbon pricing. Um, people think, well, we put in a, all we have to do is put in a carbon tax. And then, and then when the numbers come in and say, well, we didn't actually get much emission reductions, what's happened is that governments have said, okay, well, then we'll put in regulations as well. Mm-hmm. Then we'll start putting in all these restrictions on, um, on appliances and light bulbs and and elevator motors and everything they can think of, and they start proliferating regulations and doing all the things that the tax instrument was supposed to uh, replace. And so then you end up with essentially the worst of both worlds. You've got all the inefficiencies of the regulatory system, and you've got the costs of, of the tax system. It's really should be one or the other.
0: Well, let me ask you about that because it almost seems like it makes the case for government regulation if a tax can't do the job on its own. And so if you have, say, a subsidy for an electric vehicle purchase, What's the harm of that? Or if you have a subsidy for home renovations, if that's one of the things that is going to result in people producing fewer greenhouse gas emissions, isn't it just a helper to give people a guidepost to the kind of actions they can take and an extra reward so that you're able to expedite the change?
1: No. If, uh, if what you're interested in is CO2 emission reductions, then you want to focus your policy on CO2 emission reductions. If you start generating indirect policy measures, whatever you accomplish through them will be accomplished at a higher cost than you could have achieved with the direct policy measure. Um, If you put a carbon tax in and you don't get much emission reductions, the thing to keep in mind is it's not going to be the case that it's cheaper to go further with other instruments. Switching to electric vehicle mandates or ethanol mandates or home renovation subsidies it's not like those are going to get you more emission reductions at a lower cost than the tax. You might get more emission reductions, but they will come at a higher cost than you would have gotten with a tax. One way to think about it is um, if the home renovation audits, for example, the government has no legitimate interest in what kind of windows you have installed in your house. It's none of their business. and. There's nothing on the government's agenda that gives them any interest in the kind of windows that you have installed in your house. So they shouldn't be subsidizing you to replace your windows. Um, What they're interested in are CO2 emissions from power plants or motor vehicles or things like that. And they might try to say, well, by subsidizing you, Danielle, to put in new windows, we're hoping to reduce CO2 emissions somewhere... 100 miles away at a power plant. Well, when you think of it that way, then it should be pretty clear, Okay, if what you're interested in are the emissions 100 miles away at the power plant, then put in place a policy that directly affects those emissions. Don't subsidize people's um, home renovation uh, and window upgrades in the hopes that indirectly somewhere down the road it's going to affect those emissions. Also, we, we know from, I mean, governments have been doing this for years. They've been subsidizing energy efficiency and imposing energy efficiency measures. And the thing is, it doesn't even affect energy use. It um, uh, Yes, people will take these grants and they'll report that they uh, a lot of people replace their windows. But most of the people who use that money were going to replace their windows anyway, or they were going to insulate their attic anyway. And... Um, also, there's a rebound effect that um, when it starts to get cheaper to use energy, because, for instance, you might have a more efficient lighting system uh, installed, then people increase their energy consumption.
0: Hmm.
1: And um, uh, there's been a lot of research on this. And it was actually, just earlier today, someone sent me a copy of a new study, a fairly large empirical study from the United States and Europe that... Uh, looked at the long-term response to energy efficiency rules and you get a short-term dip in per capita energy consumption when the energy efficiency rules kick in but then people fully adjust to it It's a hundred percent rebound effect. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the end, you don't even reduce energy consumption so Sorry if you were hoping to get a subsidy to uh, replace your windows or buy a Tesla. Um
0: Darn it. Well, I'm looking at a hydrogen car. I'm hoping one day that, uh, (laughs) that we get the infrastructure for it. But to your point, let's continue on with the regulation for a minute, because if subsidizing consumer behavior is too indirect, Is there then an argument to be made for the direct government regulation of, say, for instance, mandating a certain amount of renewable energy being built into a power grid or mandating a certain amount of ethanol to be used in the mix for fuel or um, uh, those types of of at source types of uh, of regulations? Do do those make economic sense? Um, Because we are, again, comparing it. To a carbon tax, or asking the question of can those kind of regulations augment a carbon tax, and, and would, would those be an example of, of beneficial regulations?
1: Um, with all of them, the the answer is always the same, which is well, let's look and see what the benefits would be in terms of the emission reductions and how much that's worth, and what what are the costs. Now, in the case of ethanol, um, over the years, I've written a bit on this myself with my colleague Doug Ald here at at Guelph, but there's a a huge literature on this. It's for the tiny emission reductions you get, CO2 emission reductions, it's extremely expensive. Mm. Part of the problem is ethanol is very energy intensive to manufacture. And um, so, um, and it's also, uh, when you mix it in the gasoline, your car doesn't go as far now. So um, if you have a 10% blend ethanol, you need to fill up your tank more often. And so that means, okay, you're actually burning more gasoline. Um, There's an, on net you've burned less gasoline because you've replaced some of it with ethanol, but you're not down by 10% because you need to fill up your tank more. And then if you look at the energy used to produce the ethanol in the first place, and we're gonna be, when we up our ethanol requirements, we import a lot of the ethanol from the US. So it's being, produced by a natural gas and coal intensive electricity grid. It's not even clear in the end that we're getting any emission reductions, but we're certainly paying more at the pump because of the ethanol blend. Mm. A better way to think about this would be if, let's say you're operating a refinery and you're paying a carbon tax on, on your throughputs, Um, If somebody comes along and says, I can supply you with ethanol at a certain cost, and you crunch the numbers and you say, well, given the carbon tax, I'm actually saving money if I blend in ethanol, at least to a certain fraction. And then uh, you start putting uh, that ethanol in the blend up to whatever fraction you decided um, saves you money under the carbon tax. That would be the efficient amount. If the government came along and said you're only using five and a half percent ethanol we want you to use 15 percent and they make you do that that's where the inefficiency comes in because um, now you've exceeded what was the optimal amount in response to the carbon tax so you've essentially undermined the whole point of the tax which is get people to take actions up to the point where um, the cost of further action exceeds the value of the tax savings
0: uh, okay so you've dismantled the idea of having mandates on unclean fuel standards let's let's then talk about mandates for renewable energy because in uh, in ontario i think there's still this notion that the the grid can be completely free of any fossil fuels maybe it's because ontario uses nuclear uses uses hydroelectric power has built in quite a bit of wind i'm not sure what your solar pickup is but there is a movement to try to eliminate natural gas from the from the grid altogether and are those kinds of mandates do the can those make sense
1: Um, Well, we've had a disastrous experience with uh, renewables in Ontario. There are a few levels to it. One was um, when the government decided to phase out the coal-fired power plants. um, For air pollution reasons, I I think they made a bad decision. Their own simulation showed that coal-fired power plants were minor players in Ontario, Mm -hmm. air pollution levels and we could get the full benefit of phasing them out just by finishing what was a, a retrofit that was underway that would have brought them fully up uh, up to modern standards on pollution control. So we didn't get any air pollution benefit from that. Um, the experts that looked at it said, um, phase them out and replace them with additional nuclear and natural gas. And that's what we did. So um, when the government phased out the coal-fired power plants they contracted for an equivalent amount of new natural gas fire generation and also the Pickering uh, reactor um, was extended and so that's how we've we've made up for it the wind turbines and solar panels that was kind of window dressing on the side I mm-hmm. think the government liked to try to tell people hey we got rid of coal and we replaced it with wind and solar but they didn't do that the wind and solar has always been superfluous on the side, but it's a big cost driver in the system. Um, To your point about, can you switch over to renewables entirely? uh, No, there's nowhere in the world that you could rely on wind and solar because there's nowhere in the world where you can rely on wind. Like um, Mm -hmm. the wind doesn't always blow and you need electricity at night when the sun isn't shining. So you can install these wind and solar systems But wherever you use them, you also have to have sitting beside them an equivalent amount of capacity that you can count on uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in Ontario, that is um, nuclear, first of all, and then hydro, secondarily, and then natural gas. And that's how we power our system. When the wind is blowing, that will displace some of it, but it um, displaces hydro a lot, Um, Mm -hmm. not just... Uh, natural gas and unfortunately a lot of times the wind is blowing it's times like in the middle of the night in the fall um, or during days in the spring when um, though there's wind but there's very little power demand and we have what's called surplus baseload which means um, we have more power coming into the system than we can use and with a lot of nuclear plants you can't just shut nuclear plants off you have, um, they really have to run at a constant capacity. You can, we can spill water from some of our hydro plants and and, uh, take some of that power off the grid. But otherwise, what we end up doing, or we did um, previously, was we had to take all that wind energy and then sell it at a huge loss to the U.S. Mm -hmm. because we weren't able to use it. They changed the system after a few years because that was extremely expensive. Um, to what's called a take-or-pay rule, which means if the wind is blowing, we'll pay the wind turbines for their electricity, but um, chances are we don't even take it from them because Mm -hmm. we can't use it. Um, The move to phase out natural gas, I think, just reflects a total misunderstanding. People don't understand how the electricity system works, that um, we need to have a system that you can scale up and down during the day and respond to what may be 15 minute um, variations up and down in electricity consumption, Uh, you need to be able to instantly adjust your power supply within certain bounds. And so we have what's called a baseload capacity and we have peaking capacity. And it's the peaking capacity that you need to be able to call up a generator and get the power right away into the system. And that's what you have natural gas for. We we could do that with coal. We don't have coal anymore. The other option is natural gas. I think the only other option would be diesel. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's no other peaking power system that power plant managers around the world can turn to other than fossil fuels. So if Ontario wants to phase out natural gas, um, I think people first need to understand that quite apart from the cost, that means there will be times of the day when there's no electricity and there will be blackouts and we will have a great deal of instability in our power grid and um, give people a week of that and they will want the natural gas back.
0: No kidding. I mean, we saw that over the the past winter in Texas of what happens when the stable Mm -hmm. energy of a natural gas grid fails, you can't call up wind on demand to to fill the gap. I guess what I'm observing is it seems like there's that may be behind this new push to hydrogen is that perhaps when you get the surplus power of wind and solar, if you can store it in the form of hydrogen, then you can sell the hydrogen back into the grid um, in place of fossil fuels. But I guess the, the, the fact that we're not quite there yet on the technology, lends itself to what do you do in this, in this transition period. And I I, I I kind of wonder about this, um, the the, con- the concern that I have is that there doesn't appear to be a, a realistic assessment of how quickly we can move. I, I have a lot of confidence in entrepreneurs though. I have a lot of confidence in markets, but is there some, maybe you can give us a, a bit of a tempering on that because it almost seems like the, the policy is being implemented with the idea that, ah, the market will figure it out. They'll find mm-hmm. a way to, to innovate. Is, is that is that a realistic way of approaching it?
1: Um, well, I don't know. I mean, when we talk about innovation, the point about innovation is it's beyond this veil of what we'll know next week. And uh, we don't know what we'll know next week because um, it's not next week yet. So somebody might be on the verge of a great breakthrough. What I I would say is the breakthrough isn't going to come because uh, Canada imposes horrifically expensive rules on itself. There might be some uh, helpful innovations here and there in the system. But um, I don't think that the private sector is sitting on some terrific reconfiguration of our energy system that involves no use of fossil fuels for combustion, and all they need is a little push from the government. Uh, that's the kind of reasoning I've heard all my life, that mm-hmm. um, governments have always been saying, um, we can do this, The all we need is the will, all we need is to nudge the private sector. Um, And governments around the world have have been pushing for this and and it it doesn't happen. Uh, I think that just indicates there are non-trivial scientific and technological challenges there. Now, the other side of the story on aggressive climate policy these days is this is a great opportunity. We're just going to make so much money doing this. uh, The great transition is the economic opportunity of a lifetime. And, you know, which is it? Um, if that latter message is really the case, then stand back and let it happen. You don't need the government to go in and, and force it. If it's really the case that there are disruptive technologies, that are going to price oil and gas and coal out of existence. Great. Let's, let's see it happen. If it's going to be like... Uh, music streaming wiped out CDs and CDs wiped out final records and you don't need the government to, to do it, then I'm all in favor of it. But it's never worked that way. Um, we've had lots of examples of, of the government mandating changes that then turn out to be extremely expensive because they were asking people to give up a, a cheap and reliable option in favor of an expensive and unreliable option. And people don't like to do that
0: yes well you your example of vinyl just reminded me that my young stepson got really excited about vinyl so i think vinyl is, <laughs> is also one of those products making a comeback yeah. but to, to the, the broader point about how then do you establish a sensible climate change policy or carbon pricing policy if your individual actions can get wiped out by global actions that, that counteract it if you're putting your exports at a disadvantage, so you may end up importing products to replace them that have a higher carbon profile. Um, Mm. How do you set the price? What is it that we're trying to achieve? Because this gets into the discussion of net zero, but let's begin with talking about when carbon pricing at the federal level was first introduced. We talked about it being $50 per ton, and then recently, we heard it's actually going to go to $170 per ton over the mm-hmm. next nine years. That, that seems like somebody sat down and done some number crunching, and they've come up with an optimal value, as well as the optimal period of time to phase it in. And uh, from from the work you've done on this, you've you've even said that they they're suggesting that this is going to have no impact on gross domestic product either. So this almost seems like the perfect policy. So let's Let's dig into that a a bit and you can you can explain maybe how they got to that number and whether or not it is the case that it would that it it can have no impact on the economy.
1: Well, I don't know where the 170 specifically came from. I am familiar with the literature on what's called the social cost of carbon. So if we ignore for a minute the um, the issue of international leakage, so factories moving to China and so forth, we just ask, okay, what's our obligation? What should we do? economic answer would be um, you want to internalize the social costs of your actions so um, we w- would have to have some way of measuring what we think are the marginal damages of you using enough fuels to release a ton of co2 emissions and so there are models for doing that there's, there's lots of economic analysis obviously enormous uncertainties and disagreements and frankly the there's such a wide range of resulting numbers that it's almost guesswork where you you fall in it, but um, you pick a number. And traditionally the number that um, has been used by the mainstream in economics would be somewhere between, up until now, be between 20 and $40 US per ton of emissions. Now the high end might go up to $50 or even a bit more and we can still argue about that, but let's take $50 a ton. Let's say that's your your, your number. The economic approach would be to say, uh, Danielle, I'm not gonna tell you how much CO2 you should emit in your lifetime, but I'm gonna tell you, you should pay $50 a ton. And then the rest is up to you. And if that's nothing to you and you think, well, okay, fine, I'm, I'm gonna pay it and I'm gonna just carry on as before. As an economist, I would say, well, that's okay because you, you're you paying the social cost of your actions. And, and it's like asking, well, how much wood should I use? How many trees should be cut down because I want to build a deck on my house? Well, as long as you're paying for it and you're paying the cost of those resources you're using up, it's up to you. That's, that's really one of the essential principles of a, a free market economy that I don't get to tell you how much wood you should use to build the deck on your house as long as you are paying society for the resources you're using up, mm. you decide. And that's how we wanna think about CO2 emissions as well. I'm, I'm not gonna tell you how much CO2 you should emit. What I will say is, as long as you're paying the social cost of the fuel you use and the social cost of the emissions, then I have to stand back and leave the rest up to you. And we, do, we all do that for each other. Um, now, with the, the federal policy, um, when they brought it in, as I said before, one of the problems is they've got all these other regulations in place as well. So they're not really getting any economic efficiency from bringing in a carbon tax. Um, a carbon tax of about $50 a ton, though, they could legitimately say you can introduce this and not cause any real harm to the economy. If you recycle the revenue into the economy, especially through other tax reductions, they're using a for a variety of methods. Um, they're not the best. They amount to lump sum handouts to households and then output subsidies to businesses. Um, so, okay, that, that's fine. It'll have a small effect at $50 a ton. It also won't reduce emissions very much. And um, that's kind of the, the other side of it. So then they've said, well, let's raise the tax to $170 a ton. That's a large enough price shock though. That you're not going to be able to shield the economy from the downside consequences especially because the money is coming back to households in lump sum transfers. It's not um, reducing income taxes or any other distortions in the tax system. A lot of the money will be going out through the output-based pricing system to, bis- to some large emitters in the form of output subsidies and um, uh, Also um, some of it will disappear as, in a sense as the tax base itself shrinks. So um, the um, the way the, the government's implementing it, it's, it's not the worst system in the world for sure, but um, they could have shielded the economy a little better um, with the revenue recycling options. Now, at that point, it's, uh, I think it's still the case. They're not going to come anywhere near the Paris emission reduction targets. Yeah. Um, I think they'll certainly get partway there because this is a big increase in the cost of uh, using fossil fuels. Um, I have no idea what they're thinking. Like, well, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of thinking behind this announcement. They're going to overshoot the Paris targets and, and hit a forty-three or forty-five percent emission reduction target, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, but uh, um, If the the tax goes through, then um, there will be negative consequences for the economy and people won't be shielded from them by the rebates. Um, And then we get into another issue, uh, which you kind of alluded to, which is what happens when people see all this manufacturing activity just leaving the country? When, For a country like Canada, we're never really talking about reducing emissions. We're just talking about relocating the emissions, mm-hmm. and um, our ultimate decision here in Canada isn't um, what our global CO2 emissions going to be. Our decision is how much of them will be here in Canada, because at a certain point, um, they just move to other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And this, the talk about border tax adjustments, it might address some of that but in a punitive way that hurts us just as much as it hurts the other country.
0: We're going to need to just unbundle a few of those things so people understand what a border adjustment tax would look like. But but let me go back to the issue of how the rebate was introduced, because... I do my family's taxes. So I know we got $808.50. We get an extra little bump uh, for me and my husband because we live in a rural environment. And when I go back and look at what I spent last year in carbon taxes, because I was working from home, I wasn't commuting, my my gas bills were way down, My uh, and even the amount of, uh, of tax that I paid on my home heating, because we're principally natural gas where, where I live, uh, I would say that I probably ended up better off with with that with that transfer and so i think a lot of people would be of the view that if you're going to implement some kind of carbon or revenue neutral carbon pricing that's Mm. probably not a bad way of doing it would there have been a better way to go about it
1: um if you're running it through an economic model uh, simulation then yes the better way would be to um, pair the carbon tax with reductions in your income taxes mm-hmm. or reductions in payroll taxes or any of the taxes that at the margin have a pretty heavy distortionary effect in the economy and um, so British Columbia when they first introduced their carbon tax they introduced it paired with um, income tax reductions they've since departed from that they, they use the carbon tax revenues for a lot of other stuff um they're not getting the benefit that they could from that system the thing about the um that lump sum handout um that you get it's you know it's 800 or however much it is which which is nice but it doesn't um reduce any of the distortions in the economy that are introduced through the tax system hmm. and so um it's um it's a bit—it's a missed opportunity in that sense. Now, it's true that if you look at what you paid in carbon taxes last year versus at eight hundred, on average, a lot of households, like you would say, well, I actually got back more than I paid. But you also need to bear in mind that, especially as time goes by, you're, part of what you're paying is incorporated into the price of goods and services, mm-hmm. and um, and also um, businesses are paying. That carbon tax, and they're not getting a rebate, so they have to make up for that by um, reduced returns to shareholders and reduced payments to their workers, and so those costs are there. Um, they're they're harder for you to track. In principle, at the end of the day, it has to be the case that on average people are paying more than they're getting back in their rebate. It's just it may not be line item called carbon tax.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: maybe built into other prices.
0: So is the question of equity a political science question or an economics question? Because I guess what I, what's obviously the consideration that went into how to structure it is that if you based a reduction on income taxes, only people who have a high enough income to pay income tax would benefit from that rebate. Versus if you're giving a lump sum across the board amount to everyone, that would probably benefit Proportionately, those at the lower end of the income scale more. Would I mean? Does should that be a consideration, or is that really more of a political consideration?
1: Uh, no, that's, that's a fair point, and and economists do look at the uh, equity side of it. Um, and um, so you're right with with income taxes. Um, uh, some people, if they're not in the labor market, obviously it, it wouldn't be a direct benefit to them, unless. Indirectly, they wanted to get into the labor market, but nobody was hiring. And then by reducing income taxes, that um, expands the labor market so they can get into it. So, I mean, that gets into sort of down the road, secondary indirect effects. Um, With the HST, uh, when that was introduced, the equity consideration there was to send um, checks to low income households to offset. Uh, the cost of the HST because, <clears throat> for efficiency reasons, we like to have a consumption tax. And economists would um, prefer to move away from income taxation towards consumption taxes for efficiency reasons. But then you get this equity issue. And so that was addressed by, okay, you couple of the HST with um, low income rebates uh, to reduce the burden on low income households.
0: Okay, let's then talk about the other concept that you raised, which is a border adjustment tax. So if I understand, everyone likes to quote Nobel Prize winner William Nordhaus and his work on carbon taxes. But I think they always forget this other piece that for it to really work, I think part of his theory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think part of his theory is that if you're going to have taxes on your own domestic economy, you have to have some kind of equivalent border tax on any of the products coming in, so that you're not disadvantaging your, your local industry. Industry And so it seems to me that politicians really understand the first part, putting the tax in, but I don't know that we've seen really any effective way of trying to create that kind of parity. It's obviously an interest in Alberta, because Alberta thinks, oh, yeah, by all means, make sure you're putting taxes on that, those barrels of oil coming in from Nigeria or, or Kazakhstan or Saudi Arabia. But there's probably some factor that we're not quite considering about how complex it is when you, when you try to do that sort of pricing. So can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly not complicated if it's a matter of importing uh, natural gas or oil or coal. Um, You would just put the carbon tax on that to exactly the same extent as if it was domestically produced fuel. The issue gets a bit more complicated when we're talking about a boatload of iPhones Mm. or um, clothing or anything that in principle might have been produced here, but people produce in another country because, well, there are lots of reasons people will produce in other countries. Usually it's labor and taxes, but energy costs are important as well. And um, so when you have leakage effects, as we call them, and that means uh, one jurisdiction raises its environmental standards, or in this case imposes carbon pricing or CO2 emission reduction policies, so now energy intensive activity is expensive in canada so we'll just go and and do it in china or india or some other jurisdiction Um, then if we decide okay well we've just we didn't reduce emissions we just lost a bunch of jobs so we need a remedy for that so we'll put um, what are called border tax adjustments not just on the fuel but on all the manufactured goods coming out of china or coming out of india in proportion to what we think is the carbon content of those so first of all it's it's a terribly complicated pricing system to figure out like when you think about all the goods coming from china um that's pretty much everything and um uh if it was your job to say, okay, how what should be the carbon border adjustment on PC computers and pullover sweatshirts and shoes and mm. um, you know water bottles and thermoses and everything else, it's it's going to be guesswork. Um, then the other issue is, um, does that actually Change emissions um, down in China. Like companies that go there, um, there are a whole lot of factors that draw companies to set up in a location. And energy costs are important, but they're they're usually part of a mix. And so let's say we do put in the carbon border tax adjustments. Um, from a, a fairness point toward domestic producers, they may decide. All right, just in principle, we want to do this. But if having done that, we don't actually affect the emissions at the the source country in any meaningful way, we're worse off because those are import tariffs. And a standard um, result in in economics is uh, that when you put import tariffs in place, in most cases, you make yourself as much worse off as you make the uh, country you're importing from. So it's, uh, a lot of people are thinking about the border tax adjustment issue. Um, There's, and we need to think it through, um, but there are downsides to it. And um, it's definitely not gonna get away from the issue that unless climate action is comprehensive and at the global level, what we do here in Canada and even all the signatories to the Paris treaty taken together. what what those countries do will have minimal effects on the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere over the next hundred years. It was the same with Kyoto before it, you could hardly see the difference in the model simulations with and without Kyoto because it's a treaty that only covers Western countries and they're not the source of all the emissions growth over the next century.
0: It almost sounded like you were making the case for a global set price on on carbon, but I don't think you I don't think you were. But I'm, it's almost inescapable, isn't it? If you're going to try to address a global problem, we've got these problems of leakages. You've identified the bureaucratic complexity of trying to put border adjustment taxes you can see why it is that, that, that those who are arguing for a global solution are suggesting that we need a global price. Would there be some advantage in going down that path or does, does that get, get uh, a lot more complicated?
1: Well, for just strictly speaking about the economics, um, my ideal uh, would be um, if you have a, a scientifically rational CO2 price, Yes, every country faces that. Although every country also gets to adjust it based on what's called the marginal cost of public funds, in in other words, the cost of your tax system, and it's uh, another complication here we don't need to go into. But um, every jurisdiction should adjust that tax rate based on um, its own the internal cost of its tax system. However, um, then you have the question of well, how do you enforce? A global tax and um, then I would I guess put on my more pragmatic hat and say there are no prospects for a global police force and nor would I want there to be such a thing and um, countries can't enforce those kinds of demands on other countries unless there's some bargaining chip like for instance uh, we're not going to trade with you unless Mm -hmm. you do this or you know there'll be some other treaty that will be put at risk and and you have to have diplomacy uh, involved and um, so you, you can get a lot of cooperation among countries um, through that kind of diplomacy trade agreements work because every party to the trade agreement gets a unilateral benefit so once you're in a free trade agreement you got a benefit by joining it and you get a benefit from staying in it And um, it doesn't matter how much other countries benefit from it. You get a unilateral benefit. So the incentives there pull countries into trade agreements. But in the case of um, international environmental agreements like this, the incentives will sometimes pull countries in like Canada and the U S could agree on acid rain because we shared the benefits across the border of reducing acid rain. But if you have something like climate where, Um, It's a global issue and countries have a greater private benefit of not being a part of the treaty than being a part of it. Um, They have an incentive not to participate. Well,
0: and Canada has a difficult time too, because we're looking at some of those large growing markets like China and India as being the recipients of our goods. But if they don't have equivalent a carbon pricing policy. It's not like we would shut ourselves off from that market as well. So that creates another another right. bit of complexity. Let me ask you the the question, though, because I, I, I don't think you found it plausible when the government said that $170 carbon price was not going to have Impact on uh, on GDP, on the number of jobs, and on the impact on individual households. And you actually quantified that. So um, you uh, estimated that we would lose 184,000 jobs. That we would see each household lose, I think, 1,540 dollars. Um, that we would see a decrease in uh, in GDP of 1.8 percent. Mm. Now, now these seem like big numbers, but in the context of um, our, the, the entire size of our economy maybe maybe you can tell us is that is that a cost we should be wielding w- willing to shoulder so that we internalize the, the social cost of the of the uh, production of emissions
1: well to the first question about are these big numbers um, 20 years ago in, in the discussion around the Kyoto protocol there was a ton of work at the federal government on modeling that policy there was other various groups are running, um, simulation models, including in the private sector, and uh, in the study you reference, I have a table there of what the estimates looked like back then for Kyoto-size emission reductions, and the numbers that I calculated this time with with a new model—they're right in the same ballpark. Mm. The um, these are not unusual estimates at all for a policy intervention of this size. In fact, I, uh, knowing my own model, I would say they're. On the small side, but um, but in any case, they're they're certainly in the ballpark of what other models would have suggested if the government were doing any serious modeling. And that's a weird thing about this that hmm. they have not put out their own cost estimates, and and they don't seem interested in letting people in on um, the, these kinds of impacts. Now, to your second question, should we be willing to bear this this cost? I think it's better to. Th- think in terms of not not um, how much of our GDP should we be willing to lose, but what's an appropriate social cost of carbon. So I've written a lot on that over the years and I have um, new work in the last couple of years um, where we you mentioned the Nordhaus model. We took that model and one of the other big integrated assessment models and we ran it with updated parameters on things like the CO2, evidence on CO2 fertilization and evidence on climate sensitivity from the climate literature. And the social cost of carbon numbers still come out pretty low compared mm-hmm. to policy numbers. Um, it In the case of uh, the Nordhaus model, um, as with any model, I mean, these are big parameterized systems, you change the parameters, you get a different answer out. So you have to make a case for the parameters. But we made a case why um, the, um, the recent literature on climate sensitivity that looks at how the climate has actually adapted to increased CO2 over the past 150 years, that generates a distribution of, of impact numbers. We took that, stuck it in the model, and the social cost of carbon drops to ten dollars a ton or or in in that range and you can get higher social cost of carbon estimates and I'm aware of the papers and I've I've read them but they have to make some assumptions that are pretty controversial and I would say they have a lot of critics when when the numbers come out in the hundreds of dollars a ton so I think um, if we had a if we could agree on a, a system for coming up with the social cost of carbon that uses mainstream numbers and parameters and does the best that we can as far as the economic modeling, we would come up with what looked like fairly low social cost of carbon estimates. And then I'd be prepared to say, put that in place. That's what we're going to price it at. I predict people won't really reduce their CO2 emissions all that much. But, even if the number was much higher, I predict people wouldn't reduce their c o two emissions all that much. And when we look at Canada over the past thirty years, despite all the policies that have been put in place, even now that we're a few years into a national carbon tax, c o two emissions aren't going down. Mm-hmm. Um, big driver of that is population growth. I mean, we are um, we have high immigration levels in Canada. That's a public policy we're adding about one and a half percent to our population each year. And we also want income growth Mm -hmm. and you've got, um, growing economy, growing population and your emissions intensity of the economy. It can't go down all that fast. It goes down in Canada by about 1% per year. And it that's rate isn't going to change very much. And, um, so, um, with the extra population and, and larger GDP, um, we're probably not going to see much in the way of emission reductions, even with the escalating um, carbon tax rate, at least not on the scale that government's committed to
0: well and the the scale you're talking about is is substantial so if the market would decide to have a relatively low carbon price because we've committed to some pretty aggressive reductions under the paris accord i think the number you you calculated was 243 dollars per ton in order to meet i think just the preliminary objective of 2030 right
1: right yeah that's to get us down as of june 1st 2030 and then on July 1st, 2030, we have to start raising it again because mm. the economy keeps growing. And, and um, if you think about what these graphs look like that the government puts out, you know, this is the base case. And then if we have the policy that sort of flattens it out, but only up to a certain point and then it grows again. And um, so as long as the economy and the population are growing and we want to keep CO2 emissions fixed, with current technology and that's an important caveat with current technology we are looking at um forever tightening that policy forever increasing the costs and um so the economic consequences just get worse and worse and um like right now there's a whole new generation that t- coming to terms with climate policy for the first time and i just want to say listen folks just Go read up on the Kyoto Protocol, because we talked about all of this 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, and this was the experience that governments around the world committed to these targets. They had no way of achieving them. And um, they tried a few things, didn't work. And then it looked like it was going to be way too expensive. And they just quietly abandoned them. And the Kyoto Protocol expired in 2012 without having come anywhere close to achieving mm-hmm. its objectives. And... Um, with Paris, it's a, a different structure of a treaty. But um, even all these years into it, and with twenty thirty barreling towards us, um, the countries that are part of it are not on track to meet their targets. And the kinds of policies that they're talking about, I just don't think people really have got their heads around the the idea. That, you know, the government of Britain and I guess the government of Quebec are saying they're going to ban gasoline-powered motor vehicles sometime later this decade and ban the use of natural gas in home heating. Um, Yeah, I I don't know what people look at that headline. I I just wonder, how do you react to that? I mean, it, it must seem so unreal at this point. They probably just figure, um, if they ever try to do that, then I'll react. But for now, I'm not going to pay any attention because it's well, just so ridiculous.
0: Let Let me then put it to you because I I thought that when Europe switched to a net zero by 2050 approach, I, I looked at that and I thought, yeah, I think we can achieve that because when I look at net zero, I think the important part of that is is the net part because that's when you can have a conversation about. Our forestry industry playing a role that if they're planting trees and sequestering more carbon that creates credit opportunities or our farmers and ranchers sequestering carbon and soil that creates credit opportunities, or even some of the innovations that we're hearing about with capturing carbon dioxide and putting it in salt caverns or putting it underground for enhanced oil recovery, or even in, turning it into useful products like carbon fiber or carbon black. It strikes me that, the net side of that does make it achievable, but maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way because I, I think you, you've been you've been pretty critical of uh, of the net zero target as well. T- tell me why. Tell me what I'm missing.
1: Well, it just depends on those offset mechanisms that you describe. If um, if the cheapest among them is six hundred dollars a ton, then it's it's inefficient to do that. On the other hand, if somebody says, "Look, I can sequester all the CO two you want for five dollars a ton." then this whole issue is over with. I mean, it's, um, we'd say, okay, go for it. You can have a hundred percent of our CO2 and we'll pay you $5 a ton and, um, and we're done. But, um, under current technology, as I understand it, um, carbon capture is only applicable in a few places where you've got the underground reservoirs that, um, can accommodate it. And, um, and even then, it's expensive to pump it underground unless you get some enhanced oil recovery out of it. Um, with forest sequestration, um, that helps. But you need a net addition to your forest stock uh, to to do that. Um, or if you harvest the wood for lumber, you, um, you'll get a the credit for as long as the wood is intact. I mean, 100 years from now, the wood will eventually decompose. But, and then with farmers, um, Yes, there's there's types of agriculture that um, uh, sequester carbon in the soil, but I think it's an unstable form of sequestering. I don't understand this in any detail, but I have heard it mentioned by colleagues who work on this, that it all depends on that farmer forever after using the same tillage method on that field. If they go and change their tillage method next season, they may release all the the CO2. Um, Another downside though with with the credit approach Um, if we're going to do it then we have to let other countries do it and it's been very difficult for countries to agree on how to come up with a credible credit system because you can have countries that just stand up and announce hey we're we're sequestering lots and lots of co2 and we've got credits for sale for five dollars a ton or ten dollars a ton and um they're next to impossible to audit in any meaningful way and um, that avenue hasn't really developed all that well. Uh, back when Chrétien was prime minister though, he this was a point he tried to push in negotiations on our compliance with Kyoto. We wanted huge credits for our forests and um, the sequestering of CO2 that was happening through our forests and other countries were reluctant to give it to us and that was one of the points where negotiations broke down, um, so we we do get some credits, but not as much as Canada had pushed for. Um, so, basically, my understanding of net zero is it still involves a massive reduction in um, consumption of fossil fuels to actually get to the zero um, part, and. It's all contingent on technology, but under current and foreseeable technology, we quickly get into a range where the costs are far in excess of what they're worth as far as the emission reductions.
0: Right. I wanna I wanna talk about that too, because I, I think I think in some ways the discussion around net zero is going to a discussion of absolute zero, that there has right. to be an absolute end. To the use of hydrocarbon fuels. And I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, because you, you wrote a great column on this as well, about how clean do you want to be? How clean is clean enough? And mm-hmm. I don't know when we switched from doing that kind of calculation that you don't need to be perfect, you don't need to get to zero. It seems like mm-hmm. zero is always the goal now, that you have to be 100% off of some type of emission or, geez, even when we were talking most recently with the pandemic, there was an argument that we had to get to zero cases. Right. There there does seem to be this notion that zero should be the target and why can't it
1: mm-hmm. be? Um, yeah, so in, in that column that you mentioned, I mean, the, the question I put rhetorically speaking was how clean is your bathroom? I mean, at a certain point it's clean enough and there's no point spending more time there because there's other things that you wanna be doing. Um, It's the same with air quality, we've made big improvements in air quality um, but we do get to the point where further improvements are more expensive than any benefit that we we derive from them. In economics it's just kind of second nature that we think of the concept of an optimum and the optimum involves the trade-off of the benefits and the costs. Mm. And so when I'm teaching environmental economics, one of the points I try to impress on the students is that um, um, you, you'll understand the economics when you understand that there is such a thing as not having enough pollution. That it's possible to overshoot the optimum if you are incurring more costs to reduce pollution than the the benefits attached to those reductions. And um, so with CO2 emissions, um, you're right. The assumption of a lot of people now is simply we, we're we're going to zero. We have to get to zero fossil fuel consumption. It's not just a matter of reducing emissions now. It's um, we have to be over and done with the use of fossil fuels and transition to some other way of getting energy and Cost is no objection here. Whatever the cost may be, that's what we have to do. And um, where that comes from, I guess it's just a kind of absolutism that people can sometimes get into. Um, But nobody really applies that in every area of their life. Hmm. Um, People will get fixated on one thing and say, all right, we have to get to absolute zero um, fossil fuel use on on principle and yet if you were then to look at um everything else in their life they don't they're not that perfectionist on everything else and um so i don't know what the psychology is behind why people can become absolutist on on certain things um if you were an absolutist on absolutely everything uh you probably wouldn't have any friends and uh you 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 know you might need some kind of intervention but we don't really think that way in uh in everyday life and that's a basic insight of economics that we should apply that same reasoning across the board that look for the optimum not not the zero point
0: well, I like the way you sort of piece this together as well about the consequences of striving for zero where the costs exceed the benefit because you end up increasing costs, which would decrease the profit for an individual firm. And if you're decreasing the profit for an individual firm, you're decreasing their competitiveness. And if they're not competitive, you're not going to be able to attract investment. And if you can't attract investment, you can't grow, you can't create jobs. Like I, I wonder if people understand that that full cycle of how, costs imposed on wealth creators and decision makers, job creators, how that ultimately can, can end up creating those kind of negative um, impacts to, that reduces
1: investment. Yeah. I think it's, it's better for people. If we're thinking about something like net zero and um, they're thinking, okay, let's, let's go all the way, regardless of the cost. You need to understand okay, that that means fewer schools, fewer hospitals. That means um, people don't, climb out of poverty that are living in poverty that um, that means um, everything from we don't have as many concert halls and there's less music and there's less arts and everything else that we put a value on uh, gets tapered off in order to fund this one goal and so when we talk about what's the optimal policy mix here it's not just um, we don't want to shoulder the cost of doing something that we ought to do it's we put value on lots of things and we're just not prepared to do away with all those other valuable things in the pursuit of a goal that some people have attached an obsessive valuation to so um again it's it's the the economic way of thinking about this and it's it's another thing that we try to convey to students is is that social policy objectives is a whole portfolio of them and they're all costly and if you overdo it in one direction, the cost of that, it's the opportunity cost. It's the other things that you can't accomplish. And some of those other things are very scarce in today's world, and we need more of them. And um, including some of the biggies like um, education opportunities and better health care and, and better work opportunities and, and even just Capital formation and economic growth in poor countries and or in poor regions of Canada. Um, so again, it's it, it's what people instinctively understand in their everyday life. Just getting them to apply that same reasoning on a policy scale.
0: It, it's so important because I, I think that there has been in recent years a real pile on on corporations and profits and wealth creation. When you look at the kind of tax policy that has come through. And, and maybe I like the way you frame that about the things that governments can't do if there isn't profit to tax and if there isn't new personal income taxes to charge because you're not having new employees, that impacts the ability of government to do the things that it, it needs to do. Can you just delve into a little bit of this for me? Because I hadn't considered that the carbon tax could get so high that the amount of money being generated by the carbon tax is going to be offset by all of the other areas in, in, of tax revenue that end up getting impaired because of a reduction in corporate income taxes or a reduction in the number of employees. And you've quantified that too. There's a pretty mm-hmm. big number. I mean, you project that uh, in the end, there, there could be an additional $22 billion deficit as a result of some of the consequences associated with high carbon taxes. Explain to us why that would be.
1: Well, if the carbon tax works, like if it does what it's supposed to do, it has to grab a part of the economy and shrink it. And that happens to be a part of the economy that generates a lot of tax revenue. So um, if the tax had no effect on emissions, then we wouldn't have this, this concern. But by reducing the amount of fossil fuel use, and also reducing all the accompanying economic activity, that's going to shrink the income tax base and also the sales tax base and indirect taxes and fuel excise taxes and all the rest of it. So yes, the government gets more revenue from the carbon tax, but the rest of the tax base Hmm. shrinks along with it. And um, this is a point, again, because the government hasn't put out any of its own analysis, I don't have any numbers to compare to um, on their reckoning. But I'm just wondering, the provinces, do they realize this, that their tax base is going to shrink because of this? They're, they're making projections about tax revenue down the road, but they'll lose sales tax base and income uh, tax base, and they're not going to get, well, uh, depending on how they structure it, they may not get revenue from the, the carbon tax system. So I would think that's something that the provinces should have um, picked up on before now. Part of it though, again, just to reiterate is 20 years ago, there were multiple teams in the federal government. Um, there was a team, a couple of teams at Department of Finance. there's a, a group at um, Natural Resources Canada, Industry Canada commissioned, um, and these are all large scale econometric modeling exercises. They had internal groups, they had external groups. Um, none of that is happening now. Hmm. The government is putting in this massive policy with no quantitative guidance about the impacts. And um, so I I think for one thing, there will be um, large negative effects on employment and um, at a time when we're still dealing with the COVID recession, I, I think the timing couldn't be worse for that. But also um, fiscally, this is going to impact the provinces as they, they look ahead and try to uh, recover from uh, this giant hole that was blown through provincial budgets as a result of the pandemic, um, this is a negative shock that's coming down the road for them as well.
0: All right, so you uh, let's finish up by talking about how you would craft an ideal carbon policy. So the Conservatives federally under Erin O'Toole did come up with a carbon att- uh, pricing policy. And I think you you sort of summarized it as uh, one of the policies is a cottage tax because they want to reduce the amount of people who I guess have second homes and go to the cottage. So I think Mm -hmm. some of your critique is that they're doing the same problem that a lot of governments do is that you either believe in carbon pricing or you don't. If you price carbon, Mm -hmm. then you don't need all of those extra helpers on regulation. So Mm -hmm. let's then talk about how you would uh, structure a policy if we were to have a rational approach to this And we were to set carbon pricing in a way that had minimal impairment on markets and minimal Mm -hmm. impairment on on economic growth. What would be some of the aspects of that?
1: Um, I guess as a preface to that, everyone around the table, I'd need agreement on certain points, which is, um, first of all, we're going to target a price, not a quantity. Uh, We can't go into this with an arbitrary idea in mind that we're going to cut emissions by 40 percent no matter what instead we need to agree on what should we be paying individually for our co2 emissions and that's got to be a reasonable number um it can't uh well i think 170 is way too high but um and then another thing is to agree on what's the government actually interested in and it goes back to my earlier point that government does not have any legitimate interest in the kind of windows that you install in your house and does not have any legitimate interest in whether you have a cottage or a second home or any of these other things and, and the problem with government policy making is um, people start making these indirect connections and they're thinking well, I'm interested in reducing sulfur dioxide emissions, so, Danielle, I'm going to tell you what kind of light bulbs you're allowed to put in, in your lamp. Um, you got to stay focused on what you're interested in. So we're interested in CO2 emissions. Then we need to come up with a realistic measure of what's what social cost do you, Danielle, impose on the rest of us when you release CO2 emissions through fossil fuel use? Okay, you have to pay it. And then we kind of have to... Um, Lash ourselves to the mast and say we will live with what the market uh, comes up with and um, Now I would add to that there's a good economic case to say we should also fund some research on those high-risk abatement options out there Um, Various forms of co2 sequestration or carbon capture or other technologies that might just completely upend the cost curve, and, and say with a, a fixed upfront investment, suddenly the cost of CO2 abatement goes way down. Analogous to catalytic converters on cars. Mm-hmm. Um, catalytic converter, I uh, it's just one of the most remarkable inventions ever. We had terrible tailpipe emissions in the 60s and 70s. Uh, very bad air quality in cities because of, of motor vehicle use. And then this little contraption gets invented, stick it on a tailpipe, and suddenly the tailpipe emissions go way down and carbon monoxide virtually disappears in urban air. And so um, we can continue using cars and um, we don't even notice the cost of putting a catalytic converter on a car, but it has a big, it basically it it reduced the cost curve substantially for um, improving air quality through transportation. So, if there's something out there that has a a reasonable chance, um, then I would say, yeah, the the public should, um, public money should be behind that, because we'll all benefit if someone can invent that. And there may not be enough private sector money to make it happen, um, unless there's a big profit opportunity in it. Um, It may be, for instance, one of them is, is some kind of new approach to nuclear energy. Mm. Um, like hydrogen, I think that's an area where people think we're always on the verge of the magic nuclear reactor that solves all our problems, and um, it's it's not as likely, uh, from what I understand, um, it, it's just not likely to be the case that in the next decade we're going to have really low-cost, small nuclear reactors on every corner, but um, there may be options there on the electricity supply that we aren't aware of now or on carbon capture or things like that. But for my optimal policy for today's technology, for what are actually options in front of us and all these things that we've talked about, about balancing social policy objectives. Like I say, my ideal would be we pick a reasonable price. We put it in place and that's it. We don't touch it after that. All right. Well, and
0: I, I'm of the view that entrepreneurs probably will come up with the equivalent of that catalytic converter and probably will f- solve the problem through innovation. As long as we don't crush innovation because of tax policy, that makes it impossible to invest in and, and put towards those kinds of innovations. All right. Uh, uh, Professor McKittrick, I know that all, all of the things that we talked about today are available on the Fraser Institute website, FraserInstitute.org. Do you want to give us a sneak peek of uh, anything that else, else that might be coming
1: up? Uh- just finished co-authoring a report, uh, with uh, a colleague in the States, Robert Murphy, looking at, uh, what does the economic literature have to say about the one and a half degree warming target. And, uh, there is a huge amount of misunderstanding about where that number came from and, um, how it doesn't line up with what economists have said, doesn't even line up with what past IPCC reports have recommended. So, um, Keep an eye out for that one.
0: Oh, we definitely will. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Danielle. Nice to talk to you.
0: Nice to talk to you too. That was Professor Ross McKittrick, who's Professor of Economics at the University of Guelph. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.